I just think that the Steelers are going to collapse this year. Big Ben is a shell of his former self. They have arguably the worst offensive line in the league at this point. When you look at that secondary of the Steelers, there's basically Minka Fitzpatrick, and that's it. Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm Matt Landis and this week's conversation is with NFL handicapper Fabian Summer. The NFL season may be three months away from kicking off, but if you eat, sleep, and breathe football and you want an early leg up on the betting market, then you won't want to miss this interview. That's because Fabian has a laser-like focus when it comes to the NFL, and in this discussion, he peels back the curtain on his handicapping process and uncovers value fading two teams in their regular season win totals, plus he gets into why he thinks the Falcons will fly high with or without Julio Jones, and why he likely won't be riding the Colts early in the season. We also touch on the trade-offs of buying and selling picks. As a heads up, Fabian runs a pick-selling service, and generally, I don't recommend buying picks but I also don't recommend thinking in absolutes, so we have a nuanced back and forth on this topic. We also touch on the beer scenes both in the United States and Fabian's native Germany, and Fabian lets us know why we wouldn't be hearing this conversation if not for the sitcom King of Queens. One housekeeping note before we cut to the interview, if you're craving NBA action as the playoffs heat up, I've got some news to share. DraftKings Sportsbook is Dimers.com's official NBA odds partner for the playoffs, and to celebrate, they're giving new customers who join DraftKings via Dimers.com $200 in free bets if their first $5 NBA playoff money line bet wins. Simply head to Dimers.com, you can find a link in the show notes, Find the offer on the homepage and click through to get a free $200 if and when your first $5 NBA playoff money line bet cashes. All right, and now back to the gridiron. Enjoy this week's conversation with NFL handicapper Fabian Summer. Fabian Summer, welcome to Props and Hops. It's an honor to be having this conversation with you from halfway across the world. Matt, thank you very much uh, for this invitation. I'm thrilled to be here, and I hope you're doing well at the other end of the world. I think you are like nine hours behind me. Yeah, yeah, nine <laughs> hours behind. So let me know what the future looks like, especially when we get into some of these bets. But yeah, things are... <laughs> Looking up in California, so we're we're approaching Memorial Day weekend as we record here. I know you've got a vacation planned as well, so I think a lot of us are just eager to kind of get back out there and move more in the direction of normalcy after a pretty long 15 months or so. But yeah, it seems like things are slowly moving in a pretty positive direction overall. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, to kick things off, I know we'll talk plenty of betting. You have so much good insight to share, but... With you being in Germany and beer being a big pillar of this podcast, I've got to kick it off by asking what you're drinking as we record this. I'm drinking a Brinkhoff's Pilsner. It's a Pilsner from the brewery Brinkhoff's. Um, it's located in Dortmund. I live like 20 to 25 kilometers from Dortmund. And Brinkhoff's is a major brand over here. And you can basically get it in every grocery store or um, beer store where you go. 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's so nice when there's beer produced at such a high quality, but it's also readily accessible. Sometimes in the United States, there are, are plenty of breweries that you can find pretty widely and, and get good quality, but it is more often, I think, a battle of picking between something that's really good or something that you can find in any grocery store. Am I correct in assuming that um, in Germany, maybe a lot of the better beer that you can find wouldn't take too much hunting to track it down? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I think I think Germany is a little bit different to the US. Um, in the USA, I always hear people saying, oh, I've got this nice uh, beer from that small brewery in my region. And um, I once talked to someone from Michigan. He said, like, we have like thousands of small breweries there. And in Germany, it's a little bit different. We have the big brands that um, are very common in, in certain regions. So in my region, we have Pilsner, like Feltins, Kommacher, Warsteiner, and Brinkhoffs. And um, I would guess like every town has like maybe one small brewery where you can find um, some rare beer. Um, in my town, there's also one very small brewery um, with very ex expensive beers. Um, yeah, so I would guess that's the major difference uh, between Germany and the U.S. Yeah, well, I'm going to be one of those Americans who's about to crack open a can from a local craft brewery. And this one, I've mentioned it on the show before. It's called Beer, B-I-E-R. It's a Hellas-style lager. So if I'm talking to you, got to go with the Hellas-style lager here. And it's by Green Cheek which is my favorite brewery. They operate in Orange, California, just about 10 or 15 minutes from Disneyland. So pretty accessible for anybody doing some touristy stuff in the Southern California area. And yeah, this is just a really nice, crisp, easy drinking lager. I feel like from what I understand, it's probably about as close as you can get to Oktoberfest without traveling halfway around the world for those in California. So I'm happy to crack this open when I'm talking with you. And on that oh. note... Cheers. That's, uh, that's one of the best sounds in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. I know. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to capture it one day and use it as often as possible for this show. Yeah, maybe in the intro. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep, this is, this is a nice drinker. All right. Well, um, we, can, we can circle back on beer uh, in a little while, but I would also like to note off the top that, interestingly enough, we can probably thank the sitcom King of Queens for having this conversation. Could you elaborate on the role that that show played in your career trajectory? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, back in the 2000s, um, I would say like starting in 2004, um, King of Queens was a big time sitcom over here and you could basically watch it on like um, two or three different TV channels on Ger on German television and um, King of Queen was like a, a staple of my youth. Um, lots of friends, lots of buddies were watching it every day and um, in King of Queens, <laughs> Doug Heffernan is a big time sports fan and big time New York Jets fan, big time football fan and that was pretty much the first time that I got in touch with football at all and it was just so so fun to see how um, crazy Americans were or are about their sports. Um, over here, we pretty much only have soccer, and that's it. And everything else is just a niche niche sports. And um, basically, Queens brought me into watching football, and then I started 
watching football, I think in 2008 or 2009, uh, it was the, the first season where Rex Ryan um, became the head coach of the Jets and they made the um, AFC Championship game. And yeah, so in the end, I would say King of Queens brought me into watching football. Yeah, as a Chargers fan, I can remember those early Rex Ryan years all too well, especially after LT went from the Chargers to the Jets and they pulled yeah. that upset of the Patriots the next year. So, yeah, a lot of good moments back then to be getting into the Jets. And uh, for a little more context for listeners, you did a pretty fun interview with the Sharp Squares podcast back in January that went pretty deep on your background. So if you want more context on Suma's background, you can check out that episode in their feed. I will try to advance the conversation as much as possible rather than repeating anything if we have any crossover there. And to that end, getting into your background as a better, we know King of Queens was a big part of it, but what's the first bet you can remember making, even if it was before you got into American football, just maybe something, I don't know, in your childhood. Sometimes I hear in Europe, like betting is just so deeply ingrained in the culture. So what's the first bet that you can recall placing? The first ever bet I've made was, um, I think I was like eight or nine years old. And in Germany, you can play Lotto. I think Lotto is also big in the US. And the, the, um, uh, German Lotto, um, provider, so to speak, they also had, um, a, a sheet where you can also cross off some sports games, so like um, soccer, um, basketball, handball, whatever is uh, there posted over one week. And when you go play lotto, you can also do some parlay cards, so to speak. And um, when I was eight or nine, I was um, playing some lotto with my, I think, grandmother. And I asked her, can I also make this parlay card for, for soccer? And she said, yeah, why not? It's, it was like two or three bucks. And um, that was my first ever bet. It was a parlay card. <laughs> nice. Do you remember how that one turned out? Um, I, I probably lost like four or five or something like that. Um, but I can't really rem remember. It's like um, 23 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, to that end, I know it, there's been a lot of evolution to your betting approach over the past couple of decades. And could you touch on kind of some of the key elements of how you've grown as a better from, you know, that eight or nine year old experience filling out a parlay card to where you are today. Um, yeah, I would um, fast forward a little bit to when I was like 16, 17, 18. Um, that's when I really started getting into, into betting. And back then, I mean, I was a student, um, you were betting like 10 to 50 bucks per game. And in Germany, betting was always legalized, but it was not so famous. And um, lots of people think about betting like, oh, that's illegal. That feels illegal because you can only bet at some um, crazy dark shops in the city. Um, and then du during the 2000s, um, in like 2008, 2009, online sports betting really became public in Germany. And when I was 18, uh, the first day I basically opened up an account at BWIN and um, I just dabbled uh, into some live betting there. I was betting like some crazy stuff like um, Greece, um, women, volleyball, uh, penalty nikers against anyone, race to 10, something, something like that at completely shitty odds, but I had no clue back then. Um, 
And then I started digging into some online gambling forums like covers.com and I started watching some football and suddenly I was betting some parlays on NHL, NBA, um, football on Sundays and um, I was basically reading um, those forum threads on certain sports and there were like some tipsters and just random dudes posting their picks and saying, oh, it's a lock. This is the, the lock of the month, lock of the week. And I was just uh, copying that and betting because I thought those guys had a clue uh, and they knew what they were doing. And um, yeah, that was basically my my first step um, when betting. And then over the years, it pretty much evolved to the point like I was always a heavy stats-driven guy. Um, I was always very good at statistics in school. And as soon as you give me any kind of sports stats table, I'm hooked immediately. And um, I, I always approached um, betting and all those sports from a stats perspective and was digging into some metrics and, oh, this makes sense. Um, this team is pretty good at this. Um, they might match up well against Team B and et cetera, et cetera. And that was basically so my my involvement um, over the years. Yeah, and I'd like to dig into that stats focus because as I understand you were very well educated if I'm not mistaken a bachelor's in business administration plus a master's in engineering with a focus on statistical forecasting and that sounds a little familiar from a previous guest on the show also a colleague of yours Drew Dinsick with that engineering background so I'd have to think that that opened up quite a few doors in terms of career options and with that in mind, how did you ultimately decide to pursue a living in betting? Um, to be honest, there was a lot of um, lucky events, lots of randomness. Um, there was so many crazy stuff happen. Um, I can just explain. When I finished my master's, in uh, it was business administration and engineering, and I wrote my master's thesis um, at a major company in Dortmund and it was about statistical forecasting of sales and optimizing those forecasts to improve accuracy. And after the masters, I got a job there and it was like my dream job. And I really enjoyed um, going there every day. Um, when I uh, got up in the morning and uh, drove to work, I really had a smile on my face that might not sound familiar for lots of people, but um, it was just crazy how how much fun that job made. Um, but the problem was that my first contract was a um, replacement for a woman that was on parental leave. And um, when she was giving birth, she lost her child at birth. And after a few weeks, she was logically back at work. And then um, there was no budget to pay both of us going forward. And they kicked me out. Um, that was against the law and um, I was also right. Uh, there was like a lawsuit where I also got some money, but the job was gone um, and I basically got kicked out of there. Um, and then I was unemployed for three months. And during that time, I thought, hey, you have built a following in the sports betting content space. Um, you have been providing a solid pick, solid analysis over the years. And why just not go the pick selling route um, 
and see how it goes. And during the time when I was unemployed and um, I was applicating for some jobs, I created a website and um, I gave this thing a shot on the side. And when I got my, my second job, um, it didn't make so much fun like the first one. Um, the completely opposite was the case. And after like six months, I realized that, um, hey, what what I'm doing there uh, on, on NFL betting, um, I'm providing value to people. People value my work. Um, I think I can make money in this space. And um, I was, I think, 27 or 28 years old. I didn't have a child. I didn't have a family already. And I thought, what could go wrong? If I fail, I can still find a a, a job afterwards. And um, that was the year, I think it was 2018, when I decided, hey, let's do this full-time, full-time betting, full-time um, selling picks, uh, doing analysis. And yeah, that was how it goes. So there were a lot of um, random events along the way. And um, I would guess that if I didn't lo lose, uh, if I hadn't lo lost that job, that first job, I would probably never end up doing this. Wow, yeah, possibly a bit of a blessing in disguise there. That must yeah. have been pretty turbulent to go through in the moment, though. One thing I, I thought we might get to later in the conversation, but it, it might make sense to address now, is the topic of selling picks, because that seems like it came pretty early on in your journey. And I know that a lot of people trying to get sharper in this space or, or maybe lose less, possibly turn a bit of a profit, has been warned against buying picks. And some of the common talking points that a lot of us have heard would be that for the best bettors in the world, there's no need to sell picks because your bets are enough of a bankroll to make a good living. And if you're selling picks that are really good, that could often move the market so that even if somebody's buying your picks and you have good information, they might have a hard time getting down on it once your releases are sent out. And for lesser bettors, there might be a parallel here to extra vig where that's only increasing the break-even percentage for those who are buying picks. So with that in mind, I know those are common talking points. And in a lot of cases, I think they do have quite a bit of merit. But I also think it's important to hear out the other side. And from your perspective, how has it worked to not only justify selling picks, but, you know, develop a value proposition in doing so over the years? So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I think, first of all, great, great topic, great questions. I think it's a very sensitive topic in the gambling space. And to be honest, if someone says, says don't buy picks, it's not worth it, that probably applies to like 98% of the pick selling services out there. So it, it's just the reality of the business. Um, most guys are coin flippers who don't know what they're doing and they just want to make a quick buck on the side um, by selling picks. Um, I know there are even lots of TikTok touts nowadays who just advertise some, some lock of the week and they make like a couple of thousand grand every week. It's completely ridiculous. Um, but I think that, and I don't want to be sound arrogant here, but I think I belong to the probably maybe one or 2% who are able to provide value to subscribers who subscribe to, to my service. Um, I can maybe describe my, my process. So, um, when I make a bet on the NFL, 
Um, I bet everything or let bet everything off screen. Um, I won't touch the market and then I give it to my subscribers and then usually the, the market moves pretty, pretty heavily immediately within like 30 seconds and especially early in the week. And it's impossible for every one of my subscribers to get the same price that I'm giving out. It's, it's just not possible. But however, in the end, A, people are still getting a pretty decent ROI um, over the course of one season. That's been the case for like um, four years straight now. And um, even if you don't collect like the 2% of closing line value in the NFL and you collect only 1.5 or 1.6% or closing line value on average, I think that's still much, much better than flipping a coin on Sunday morning. Um, and along the way, um, I try to give perspective on, on all my bets and um, provide write-ups on all the picks. I um, have a Slack channel where people get into discussions um, where we talk about all the picks. We talk about survivor pools, survivor picks, about leans, certain angles, everything, betting process. Um, I give write-ups on, on all my picks and I think that people um, are able to find value in that whole package. Um, getting information um, and still getting a very good ROI even though they might not get every price that I'm giving out. Um, and so my goal or let, let's say um, I pretty much realized that in 2014 when I was posting picks and analysis in the Covers NFL forum and I realized that there are lots of guys who are solid at betting who produce solid records year after year. And then there are uh, guys who are able to provide good content. But it was very rare to find someone who had solid picks and provided people with good information around that and um, to explain his, his betting process. And that was the year when I realized that, hey, there's a place in this space for someone who is good at betting who is good at providing content. And if you mix that up, you could probably build a um, solid career in that space. And um, I think people are completely right when they say the touting industry or the pixeling industry is extremely shady. But I think that there are some guys out there that are worth trying, trying out. And um, to go a little bit further, you had Rob Pizola on the show, I think, like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, mm -hmm. uh, Rob is a part of Badstamp and um, Badstamp is a very cool and fun app in the way that it makes the pick selling industry more transparent um, because everyone can put in his bets and stamp them with actual prices. So you can get a very accurate um, pick history of everyone who is selling picks And I think that that uh, will help um, customers in in the long run. And let's be honest, the pick selling industry is never going to go away. There will always be people who sell picks. That's just the reality. And um, Betstamp offers a great way for um, touts or pick sellers to sell their picks on the app and for customers to get uh, the most transparent results uh, possible. So my overall take is 
Um, I think in general buying picks is not a good idea uh, because most guys are coin flippers. Um, but I think it will also never go away. And um, if people are able to to find guys who are consistent in their process, who can um, provide and show decent closing line value or a decent sample size, I think it's 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 worth trying. Um, for some people, when the, when the fees are not high, it's also an entertainment factor because um, some guys want to bet. I, I think just many people just want to bet. They want to have some stake on, on, on Sunday and when they um, can finish the season on the winning side while paying a, a small fee on the way um, instead of coin flipping on Sunday morning, I think um, there, there's a pretty solid market out there. Yeah, I appreciate all the thought and nuance that clearly goes into your answer there. And there's so much to unpack. I feel like in the future, it might be great to do a, an episode solely focused on this topic. I have a, a couple of follow-up questions and then we'll move on to other subjects. But one thing you mentioned early on that seemed really interesting, tying back to the point that a lot of people throw out as a red flag about buying picks is that you know, good pick sellers will move the market to the point that you can't get down at the same number. And you mentioned that, yes, some people will struggle to get your number, but oftentimes what you'll do is that off screen. And I would love to learn more about that from your perspective. And I think a lot of listeners might be eager to hear, what does that look like to bet off screen? How do you get down yourself in a way that doesn't move the market? Yeah, so um I personally bet at um, Bookmaker, I saw Bet Chris and Pinnacle in the past. Um, and my problem was that um, at some point, Pinnacle tracks your account as soon as you beat the closing line consistently. Um, and I did that at Pinnacle. And at some point, I was able to move an NFL site for like five cents or, or three cents with a 500 bucks bet. And at that point, I realized that uh, I cannot bet at Pinnacle and then give out a, a worse line to to my customers. And um, over recent years, I started working together with some partners um, on, on betting. And nowadays, um, my, my, my process is that, let's say I want to bet the Packers minus two, minus 110 on, on Tuesday morning. Then I send that play to my partners. I, I work with, they get down at several places off screen at some locals, um, at some PPH books that are not connected to Chris or Pinnacle that are pretty much disguised in the, in the, in the screen marketplace. Um, and that way you can get down and, um, the, the odd screen at Don Best will not move. And that way I can assure that I can get down and at the same time I can at least send out the price that I personally bet a game. And if it's early in the week, it's just the reality that um, some people in my Slack channel, they are immediately going to to hammer Pinnacle and Chris, and then the whole screen is um, blinking and the market is moving. And um, if you are maybe a little bit too late, someone is in a morning meeting, he, he sees the pick, but he just cannot get down. He might have a worst price um, after that. That's just the reality. Um, I think 
in the end, it's still the best I can personally do. And um, I consistently um, have that feedback loop in my Slack channel. Sometimes people say, oh, I was not able to, to get minus two. Is minus two and a half or minus three uh, plus 100 still a, a good bet? And then I will tell them, yeah, I would bet it up to that point. And then that's fine. And I think in the end, um, no one ever complained about getting r really worse prices consistently. But um, you are completely right. If you are able to move the market, if you have some market influence, um, it's just impossible for all subscribers to get the same price. Yeah, I think one important point that you touched on was letting people know, okay, even if the number moves, it's still maybe good to a certain point. And when I'm managing my bankroll, I think of a methodology that the late, great David Malinsky shared when I had the honor of a lifetime to work with him. And he mentioned, you know, a lot of times it's easy to be overconfident in just how good a bet is. And he used what I think of in my head as a, a four, five, six betting scale where multiples of five would be a standard unit depending on the type of bet. And it's important to note that whatever that standard unit is, it should probably be very different, whether you're betting an NFL side or if you're betting a WNBA game or prop bets or teasers, unit sizes should fluctuate based on the edge that you have and what you're able to get down with different bet types. But for a specific bet type, once you know your standard unit, some multiple of five, anything worth betting should probably be at least a four out of five. And no bet is so good that you should go beyond that six. So like a, a 1.2 unit play doing that translation. So a lot of times if I'm looking at, um, you know, I was talking with Andy Molitor the other week and I was eyeing a, a teaser in week one. If there was one more tick on Washington up to plus one and a half hosting the chargers, in which case a two team six point teaser would get them up through seven to seven and a half. I'm like, cool. If I could take that and pair it with Miami, taking them up through three and seven to plus eight and a half, then I like that a lot. I don't see a lot of variance in those games. Um, again, fits magic. Anything can happen. There's inherently some variance there, even if that game has a really low total. So I wouldn't exceed 1.2 units, but I would say, yeah, this could be a 1.2 unit play. And if Washington stays at plus one and you can't cross up through seven, I'm not going to tease them. So I'll have to find somebody else on the board. Maybe that would be Tampa Bay in the season opener and you don't get the same value on some key numbers. So that might only be a standard unit or even the, you know, the four out of five and eight tenths of a unit play. So staying in that range, not only saying, okay, the bet is good up to this number, but if you're not getting the right number, you can also scale down the size within kind of a, a predetermined bankroll range that makes sense for the bet you're placing. Yes, exactly. Um, and sometimes um, people ask me, um, well, I missed out on the, um, let's say, um, 48 over and the, mom, and the number has moved to uh, 49 and a half and I, I would say, okay, at 49 and a half or at 50, just to, to, to bring an example, I would probably not make it a full unit play at this point, but if you want to play it, play it for half a unit. So that's some stuff that um, usually occurs in the Slack channel. Yeah, I think that's smart just to know, okay, what number is this good to? And then at which numbers do we want to either scale up or in many cases, if the market's moving in an efficient direction, scale down the bet size so that it's, you know, 
not necessarily going the Kelly or half Kelly route, but still mm-hmm. going in line with the edge that we think is in play. And you also touched on something. I'll have to make sure that Rob and Johnny and Julian at Bedstamp hear this because you gave them a great endorsement. And I think that point about transparency is really valuable. And beyond Bedstamp, you are one of the few people who I've seen go on Twitter. And even if it's not a great week, if people follow you at Suma810, S-U-U-M-A-810, they'll know if you had a losing NFL Sunday. And they'll also know if you had a winning week, but it's refreshing to see that, okay, even people who handicap this full-time, who are overall very successful, you know, inevitably cold streaks will come up. So that level of transparency and accountability in a public forum goes a really long way. So I think the industry could use a whole lot more of that. I wanted to reinforce that point about transparency and and the good things you had to say about a platform like Betstamp. And I think one more thing on this topic, then we can dig into more on the NFL specifically. Um, but you touched on, you know, not just providing the picks, but also giving some analysis and in a Slack channel diving into other, you know, types of bets. If there's a survivor pool or other things people want to talk about, how important do you think it is to provide the type of content that's not just, hey, here's the lock of the week, go bet it, five-star play, but actually to, you know, get into the nuance that that's in play behind almost any type of bet you could consider making and really try to lay it out in as much detail as possible for your audience. Yeah, so I think that um, um, there are different kinds of subscribers. I know that there are people who just come for the picks. They they mute all the channels in the Slack channel that is not uh, about picks. They just want to get the picks and nothing else. Then there are people who don't even tail my picks. They they just don't don't bet my stuff. They they just come to to get my analysis and to get my point of view on some on some of those games and then they are able to use that information and shape their own numbers and sh- shape their own approach to the week. Um, and I I just try to explain my thought process. So when I bet the Packers minus three against the 49ers, um, I want to express my thought process um, in terms of how did I arrive at this bet? What were my thought processes? What was my number on the game? Where did I make adjustments? Um, what injuries did I find important to this game? What specific matchup advantages did I see in in the process of leading up to that bet? And I think that um, many subscribers value just picking my brain, so to speak. So just not getting um, here's the pick and that's it for the week. They They basically want to know what I'm thinking when I make that bet. And I think that is a yeah value proposition to a um, specific share of the subscriber pool. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's it's clear that as, as much of a kind of dark, grimy underbelly as there is in the pick-selling industry, there are people who put a lot of thought into this and, and try to do things the right way and still ensure that people are getting value out of it. So... Um, I like your point that, yeah, maybe 98 or even 99% of the time, it's a bad idea. But um, like pretty much everything in life, I try to keep it consistent with betting not to deal in absolutes. So I appreciate you sharing some light on the other side of that coin. Even if it's not something that people should do often, it doesn't mean it's something that they should never at least consider. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all I can say is um, 
pig sellers will always be there. There's always going to be a market for that because uh, people also want to buy pigs and they think that um, if if they tell someone um, they are doing a better job in uh, instead of just flipping some coins and um, at least if if someone wants to buy pigs, just try to find a way to get more informa information about the guy. Look for a um, transparent um, pig history. Um, Badstamp is a great place to do that. Other than that, than that, scroll down the Twitter timeline, see what other people are commenting um, at at the at that guy. Um, try to ask some people who have bought pigs from that guy or from that woman in the past. And I think if you do a good background check and um, you come up with the decision, hey, um, it's a price that I'm willing to buy to maybe improve my own betting process and um, finish the, the season slightly in the green, why not? I think um, that's not a bad idea in general. Yeah, well said. Well, I think we can put a bow on it there for now, but you did just touch on, you know, the, the betting process that a lot of people go through. And I would like to dive into yours specifically. You've touched on in the past having three primary components. Number one, your model. Number two, subjective power ratings. And number three, subjective analysis. And that could be matchups, injuries, coaching, things like that. So I'd like to dig in a bit on each of those, starting with the model. And I think it's important for people to keep in mind that even with the best model, if you're not updating it, there's kind of that adapt or die element in play. And the best model a few years ago might have had quite a bit of emphasis on a stat like DVOA. And since then, it seems like DVOA has been surpassed by a metric like EPA. And I'm wondering, as it pertains to your model, if you could give a quick explainer on each of those two metrics, plus how you know how much weight to give a stat and when you might need to devalue it and when you might need to give something else more value than you have been in the past. Yeah, um, I have always used DVOA from footballoutsiders.com. It's a very sound metric. It, um, it It's basically saying um, Team A is gaining, let's say, 8 yards on 1st and 10 um, at the 40-yard line. In the in the first half, when the score is um, tied uh, zero zero nil to nil, and they are doing it against um, Team B that has a certain strength, and then Football Outsiders gives the outcome of that given play a certain value, and that value pretty much get, gets normalized, and then you come up with a process based with a very sound process based metric that gives you a clue about um, how well a team has been performing on average per every single down and DVA has been there for the past two decades it has always been a very good metric to fall to it still is a very solid metric but I don't want to dump on football outsiders at all but in recent years I haven't found, I haven't really found any value in DVOA because I think that the market has entirely caught up to DVOA. Um, there are in 2021 so many models out there that shape the markets. Um, and I would guess at some point, like probably 70% were using any form of DVOA. 
Um, and so as soon as a metric gets public and um, gets into many models that have any kind of market influence, it gets pretty much obsolete to use that metric um, in the original way. So, And also over the past two years, I have found some inconsistency. So sometimes I was looking at the DBOA table and I saw that they had a certain team, let's say, ranked third or fifth. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't fit the eye test. It doesn't fit my subjective power rating. And it doesn't really see what we are seeing on the field right now. So there were some inconsistencies there. And um, I think right now the best metric is expected points added, EPA per play. Um, it's um, a metric that was, I can't really tell you who originally came up with it, but in 2020, early 2020, um, Sebastian Carl and Ben Baldwin, they have created that R package NFL Fast R, and they basically calibrated the EPA expected points added model to a point where it's really, really useful. And um, there's still a distinction to be made between a metric can be very useful and a metric can beat betting markets. Those are two entirely different um, topics. Um, EPA is a great metric if you want to describe a, a process, describe a team performance. Um, but we are also at a point where I would say that if you use team level models in general, so if you if you use any kind of metrics on a team level like expected points added, you are not going to beat the market in 2021, or at least it's getting really, really different, uh, difficult. Um, my own model, statistical model that I use um, also combines some EPA stuff, some quarterback projections, some regression angles for, for um, teams on the team level. But I know that my own model has significant flaws. And I, I, I use that model basically as a, as a baseline um, to give me a hint Hey, how has a team performed in recent weeks? Um, and if we combine that with some uh, regression angles um, where you have to regress some uh, some metrics to the mean where a team has overperformed, underperformed, and you combine that with the quarterback expectation, then it gives me a solid overview about where a certain team is standing right now. But the the big problem with any kind of team level model that uses any um, team level metrics is that you have to apply a context for all 32 teams in the NFL. Every metric that you use has a history in terms of how it was created by the by the team that performed. And let's say we we jump into week 10 of the NFL, then you have 32 teams who have all had a different schedule. They have played entirely different teams and they have dealt with entirely different injury situations. Um, a good example from 2019, um, the, the Chiefs, they didn't have a great start into the season. Patrick Mahomes had two high ankle sprains. Um, one in week one against the Jaguars, then I think in week five against the Colts, where he, where he re-aggravated his high ankle sprain uh, prior to halftime. 
And then he had the kneecap injury against the Broncos. Tyreek Hill was missing four or five games. Eric Fisher was missing like six or seven games. Andrew Riley, their left guard, was out. Um, and th there was a game against the Colts where Patrick Mahomes got injured, injured in the second quarter. Tyreek Hill was not playing at all. Sammy Watkins played one snap. So it was uh, Patrick Mahomes on one leg throwing to Travis Kelsey, Byron Pringle, Brian or Byron Pringle, and a bunch of scrubs, basically. And these are the kind of games that you cannot use when you fast forward to week 12. So no matter what metric you use, whether it's DVOA or EPA, those metrics will always be much lower on the Chiefs because they cannot apply individual context. And that's the reason why I think that in 2021, it's very, very hard to beat NFL markets if you only use a team-level um, model and only rely on that. Yeah, and you touched on something that could make it beyond knowing how to weight everything properly, using metrics that might be in, I think you said DVOA at a certain point, you guessed was in 70% of the models out there. And that to me begs the question about sample size, where even in a full NFL season across all teams, we get now with the 17 game season, 272 games. That's a pretty small sample in the grand scheme of things. And with the game evolving, if you want to wait for a significant sample, that poses the risk of adding some useless data to the information that you're working with. So how do you reconcile the discrepancy between sample size being too small versus having an appropriate sample size, possibly with irrelevant data? Yeah, when it comes to the NFL, you will never have enough data. That's just the reality. And um, that's also a, a big reason why using metrics like DVOA and EPA is very helpful, but it's not really let's say, very sound if you want to beat betting markets because of the context you have to apply. And um, that way, I personally try to add a heavy subjective layer. And I use a subjective power rating where I um, um, rank 32 teams um, with the average being zero. So I, I, I'm saying, like, for example, the Chiefs are... Uh, minus six or minus seven against an average team. And then I go through all the teams and basically say, hey, based on everything that I know, based on all my research on my knowledge, I would make the Chiefs minus seven on a neutral field against an average team, for example. And I would make them like up to minus one and a half against the next best team. And um, that's um, basically a process where I compare um, as much teams, uh, as many teams as possible. And then I come up with a subjective power rating um, um, applied to the current situation. So when a team loses, uh, they're both starting right and uh, starting left tackles, I will decrease the rating in my power rating, for example. And um, then I also add a subjective, let's say, matchup layer. So um, I have my statistical model that gives me a hint or an overview where I would rate the teams currently if, the, if they were healthy and if they were in the exact same situation as they were over um, the past 8 to 10 weeks. So basically saying if they 
are the same team that produced those metrics, um, et cetera, et cetera. And with that quarterback, I would have them in that kind of range. That gives me like a spread for a certain game. Um, but that might sometimes um, differ from my power rating. And um, that's when what I think is very important when it comes to the NFL, that you apply um, subjective knowledge. Because, um, like I said, I don't think that you can beat betting markets with a team-level model in 2021. And you have to apply context. You have to follow um, the league and you have to come up with with some thought process that is not captured in the in the market number and um, I would say that even though I use some kind of model the subjective part is still the um, um, far far bigger part in my handicapping process yeah well it's clearly such a detailed handicapping process and I think that this might be a good chance to bridge the gap to looking at the 2021 NFL season because with a process like yours and with the focus you have on the NFL, having this conversation with you, we're recording in late May. It'll probably be early June before people are hearing this, but we're a few months before the season starts. And a lot of people are still focused on the NBA playoffs or golf, you know, just wrapped a major and there's still a couple more in the not too distant future. NHL playoffs, it's an Olympic year, but if you have kind of a laser focus on the NFL and such a buttoned up process, I'm curious to hear what kind of prep have you already done, what still needs to be done, and what kind of advantage do you think it gives you to be where you are right now as far as having a head start on everybody else before the season kicks off? So I don't know whether I'm going to have a head start on everyone else, but um, I think my big advantage is that I'm NFL only, so I don't bet on other sports like NHL, NBA. That's probably a disadvantage because I don't have a as many opportunities to to uh, win money than other people. Um, but um, for me, that's an advantage when, when it comes to the NFL because I'm I'm pretty much focusing 360 days a year on the NFL. And at this point in the off season, I have already um, done research and I have daily discussions um, with some other smart people um, about the NFL, about all those moves that occurred in the off season. And currently I'm in the process of, um, I am um, writing uh, team previews on every team in the off season that I post in the Slack channel. And um the big advantage is it's not just about creating content and saying, hey, I do team previews, subscribe to my channel. Um, so it's it's not just an, a, a marketing gig to um, get money, but it, it really helps me to dig into the team. So when, when I do a team preview, I usually spend like several hours on one specific team. I study depth charts. I go through some um, past season stuff. Uh, I check out some metrics, regression angles, and basically try to um, do my due diligence on, on every team in, in detail. And then I come up with a team preview and sometimes it's like, okay, um, the research that I did didn't really change my perspective on the team. But sometimes I'm saying, like after four or five hours, I'm saying, 
oh, I was probably too low on this team because they they really have some certain strengths that were were not on, on my radar uh, two weeks ago, or there are some certain weaknesses, and I, I might be too too high on this specific team. And um, that's basically my process right now. That will be over in like July, and then in August we have preseason. Um, I I always read read the Football Outsiders Almanac. Um, they have like 32 team previews from several really, really good writers where you can also get some really good information. And um, yeah, it's, it's basically just um, doing research, um, also doing some research on the betting side, so, some self-scouting, um, what, I, what I've been missing in the past, um, what bad bets I've made in the past. Um, did I, did, maybe did I, I, I had a very bad grasp on some certain teams. Why was that? Or, um, doing some research on some betting angles. Um, maybe, um, this is a good angle. So I can backtest that against the pinnacle closing line. Maybe there's some value there. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much my, um, everyday, um, work right now. Yeah, I'd love to parlay that into where we might see value looking ahead to the 2021 NFL betting market. And picks are great, but I'm really, as people can probably tell by this line of questioning so far, more interested in your process. And you mentioned sometimes sitting down for hours and and coming away thinking roughly the same as you did about a certain team. And other times there might be eye-opening factors that you hadn't spotted previously that could have you higher or lower after doing that research that Really, you're putting this in now, and I think very few NFL betters are at that stage at this point in the year. So to that end, have you had any big thoughts on maybe teams or players that you're much higher on or lower on than you would have expected, or any general candidates for regression, be it negative or positive? Um, yeah, I'm just opening some stuff on my laptop right now. Um, I've bet some... Team totals, um, like two or three, three weeks ago. Um, a bunch have moved already, but, um, I still see some value on the Raiders under seven, currently at minus 109 at Bet Chris. Um, I think that the market is still too high on Las Vegas. Um, they had a pretty good offense last year, but their team management has been horrendous. Over the past three years since um, Mike Mayock and John Gruden joined, and now they still have a very bad defense on paper. Um, they have um, lost uh, three, I think, three starting offensive linemen. Um, they have no wide receiver outside of Henry Rux, who they used poorly last last season um, at Alabama. He run lots of stuff in the short area, lots of bubble screens, lot of slants, drag routes, and just getting his yak ability um, into space. And the Raiders suddenly used him entirely as a deep threat. So um, I have some major concerns with the team. I don't think they're going to be good. And um, I bet the under seven at, I think, plus 100 and at uh, minus 09, there's still some value there. Um, another team that I'm extremely low on and I think where the market is too slowly catching up is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, I just think that the Steelers are going to collapse this year. Um, Big Ben 
is a shell of his former self. They have arguably the worst offensive line in the league at this point. They only have David DeCastro and, and a bunch of um, underwhelming people or rookies. <laughs> they are just plugging in, plugging in, and they have some very underrated losses on their secondary. Uh, with Steven Nelson played very well at cornerback, uh, Mike Hilton slot cornerback. Uh, did some um, great stuff and came to pass rushing out of the slot on nickel blitzes. Um, they lost Bud Dupree. I think they they might um, compensate that. But um, when you look at the secondary of the Steelers, there's basically Minka Fitzpatrick and that's it. And they are so thin at cornerback. Joe Hayden at, uh, I think, age 33 is their best uh, secondary player outside of Minka Fitzpatrick. And I think in in this division, I'm extremely high on the Browns and Ravens this year. Um, I think the Bengals are going to have a solid offense, and I can really see the Steelers um, finishing fourth in the AFC North. I don't think that's a hot take to make at um, this point. Um, and another thing is that I, I like to look at um, how much power did teams create from turnovers. And um, with the NFL Fast Hour package, you can look at how much win probability did a certain team gain in some during the season and how much expected points added did they gain from turnovers. Uh, so, example, you can say, okay, um, you just subtract the turnover on defense from the turnover on offense and then you come up with, hey, overall from all turnovers, Team A was very fortunate, and um, you are looking at, let's say, the 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 Colts. Very interesting case. The Colts they led the league in win probability gained from turnovers, and their defense started very well. They had a bunch of great turnovers, turning into great field position, um, returning for six. And Philip Rivers was very underrated last year. He had a very good sneaky good season, he didn't turn the ball over and in the end, the, the Colts led the league in win probability gained from turnovers and that has to regress especially if you um, replace Philip Rivers and a Hall of Fame quarterback, in my opinion with Carson Wentz who had one good season in 2017 where he had a crazy high variance on third downs and I just don't see um, how the Colts are that fortunate again when it comes to turnovers. And that's going to be very interesting because I think their defense is playing very sound. They are, they are solid, but they are relying on rookies when it comes to the edge rush. And they are just, um, they just don't have the top end quality of players on defense. So if they don't get lucky on turnovers on defense and Carson Wentz struggles to, um, keep the ball in, in, in his hands or on his own offense like he did in the past, I don't think the Colts are necessarily better than they were last year. Yeah, a couple things to circle back on there. First off, in the spirit of what we were talking about earlier with adjusting maybe a bet size for a number moving a little bit, that Raiders season win total has shifted a little bit since you bet it, but you said you still see value. Um, and for Pittsburgh, I'd also be curious. So for the Raiders and Steelers, is there a, let's say, like a price floor at which you would cut off where there is value? And then would you say at this point, these are bets, again, maybe it's half a unit or, or something in that range? Or um, how do you look at the value for the teams with the current prices and, and where the floor would be to constitute those numbers being bettable? 
Yeah, so I, I don't have the table in front of me that I could where I could tell you exactly the price, but um, I would say I would probably take the Steelers under 8.5 up to minus 120. I'm currently seeing uh, minus 119 at BetQuiz. I bet it at plus 105, pretty good price. Um, and I would probably cut it off at um, um, under 8.5, minus 120. I'd probably go like... Um, 75% of a unit on on um, my original bet. And for the Raiders, they are still perfectly fine to bet at under 7 minus 01, or 09, sorry. Got it. No problem. Yeah, it seems like especially with the Raiders being in Vegas now, uh, I don't know how much of it is the local Vegas effect because it is such a global marketplace at this stage. Um, maybe there's something else to it, but it does seem like the general excitement around the Raiders can open up some nice windows of opportunity for betters willing to step in front of that scene. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there might be some to the Vegas hangover and there might be some, something to that home field advantage. I think the um, Las Vegas Knights had a decent home field advantage, um, in their first season in Vegas. Um, I think it was extraordinarily, but in the end, I don't think that could potentially make up for such a bad team that I'm currently um, waiting. Yeah, and it's interesting what you bring up with the Knights because I was at one of their first ever home games. They played the Detroit Red Wings, and if you told me I was in, I guess the Red Wings don't play at Joe Lewis Arena anymore, but if, it, if you told me it was a Detroit home game, I would have believed you based on the crowd noise. And okay. having read the book Scorecasting, my takeaway was that home field advantage is almost entirely driven by crowd noise and the way that it can affect referees, officials, subconsciously. There's often a bias in favor of the home team, but that's that's driven by the crowd. So, again, being a Chargers fan, when they have to go to a silent snap count <laughs> at home, that that means that their home field advantage is probably not as strong as it would typically be, and it's not because – you know, teams have to travel far to the West Coast or, or anything like that. Those things are often built into the line. It's a really efficient market. But with the Knights, it's so interesting because it seemed like that's the destination where if you're a Red Wings fan or if you're, you know, a fan of the Calgary Flames and, and you've got a weekend in Vegas to go see a game, that's probably a trip that all those fans are going to take. So yeah. really curious as to what's there, but we'll give it some more time. I, I know they're still a pretty new team, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. Uh, but pivoting back to the points you made about the Colts, I think there was something um, really good for people to note. Turnovers, when it's taken to such an extreme, almost regardless of the talent on the team, it's going to regress. And then if you factor in a change at quarterback, and Carson Wentz did not have the best supporting cast with the Eagles. We know that, but um, he still seems quite turnover-prone, you could say. So when it comes to the Colts, are there other ways you'd look to get in play? Maybe not in the regular season win market if you're not seeing value on that number, but are there any props or other futures that you have in mind for the Colts at this stage? Or is that more something you're looking to see how slow the market might be to adjust to as they're regressing in season, maybe some week to week against the spread opportunities? Uh, uh, definitely the, the letter um, on Twitter. I don't know his handle. It's Lee Sharp from Pro Football Focus. Um, he has posted the market implied power rating from the Westgate Superbook. So the Westgate has posted um, lines for all 272 games. And w what Lee basically did is that 
he worked backwards and calculated what the power rating would be um, based on the um, Westgate odds makers. So what they are currently thinking. And I think when when I remember right, the Colts were pretty high on that list. And I absolutely absolutely have them rated lower at this point. So um, I think there might be some solid betting opportunities against the Colts early in the season if the market um, doesn't get lower on them. Got it. So I'm noting the Colts as a team to possibly look to fade in season. And yeah, that was a really good note. You mentioned that. I love insight like that. So I did some research as you were laying out your points. It is at Lee Sharp NFL and Sharp is S-H-A-R-P-E. So if if listeners are into the point that Zuma just made, want a good follow on Twitter, you can check out Lee Sharp at that handle. And um, one more bet specifically that I wanted to touch on, I know that you've also um, made your preference known on Atlanta over seven and a half wins not too long ago, but now with the Julio Jones rumors. I know you had a tweet on May 20th saying that trading Julio Jones doesn't make any sense. And some of the speculation is now that maybe the Falcons know that, but if it's Julio trying to force their hand, then, you know, what can they do? So when it comes to a situation like this, where at this point there's a lot of noise and it's, it's hard to give too much weight to speculation, but has that shifted your stance? Do you feel any differently on Atlanta right now? I assume that even if you do, there might not be enough value to, you know, to play anything the other way necessarily, but how do you feel sitting on Atlanta over seven and a half right now with the whole Julio Jones situation? So I still very, very comfortable with, with that number um, because I think the Falcons, even without Julio Jones, they, they should be able to finish the season with a positive record, like a 9-8 or 8-9 should be like a solid floor for them. So even without Julio, I like their chances to turn into a positive record because the Falcons, they have so much positive regression going for them. Um, when we move back to the win, probab win probability from turnovers, it was crazy that the Falcons had a very large split between EPA from turnovers, which was positive, and win probability added. So when they committed turnovers, it was usually at the worst time possible. So when the game state was really tight and they collected turnovers or avoided them when the game state was not important. So that was super fun to, to, to see. And we pretty much saw that last year. So there were like, I think four games, um, against the Lions, the Chiefs, the, um, I think first game against the Bucks, um, the matchup against the Cowboys where they left. That was by like an all-timer. All-timer. And I think if just one play in all those games goes differently, they go 4-0 and in those games, and we would probably not be talking about a win total of 7.5 right now, rather in the 8 range. So um, they were extremely unfortunate, and I just like the combination of Arthur Smith, great play caller. I mean, the Titans had, I think over the past two years, the Titans ranked 4th in EPA per play on offense. And that's with five starts from Marcus Mariota. So he basically turned the Tennessee Titans into a juggernaut on offense. Um, and now he has a slightly better quarterback. He has Kevin Ridley, Kyle Pitts, who could break every potential rookie Titan record. And he might have Julio Jones. And I think that offense is 
um, predicated for lots of success this year. I think even without Jones, they could still easily get into it, into the top 10 in terms of efficiency. And if they do that with some positive regression in tight games and on turnovers, they should be able to land on the, on the positive side this year, even if they get rid of Julio Jones. Because, um, when we get back to, to modeling, let's say you have a power rating and you have the Falcons at value X. And then the question is, how much do you reduce for Julio Jones missing? And even though Jones is like, still like a borderline top eight um, wide receiver, he is going to turn 33 soon, but he was still pretty good last year despite the injuries. And let's say you were just like one point for him or something like that. One point when you do a simulation for, for, for season wins, it doesn't make that much of a difference. I mean, subjectively, Jones um, uh, decreases the floor and the ceiling for that offense, but I think they still have a very good situations to um, be a good offense. Yeah, I've heard Steve Fezzik touch on, I believe he said that roughly 35 points to the spread for a player um, would be one win. So some quarterbacks who are worth a touchdown to the spread in any given game, if they miss a lot of time, that can really swing their regular season win expectation. With Julio, if we say one point in a 17-game season, that's roughly using 35 as the threshold for a win, 17. So say Julio's rough, worthly half a win to their season win total. That's also assuming that his level of play stays really high and that he doesn't miss a lot of time. So it seems like even acknowledging how good he is, you feel pretty comfortable with or without him. And one other topic that I think of with the Falcons, being an NFC team this year, they've got nine road games just based on the way the NFL drew up the schedule. And then they were assigned a home game in London. So even though they're home in that game with the travel, it almost feels to me, again, this is getting more subjective, so I'd love your mm-hmm. input on this, but with the Falcons, they feel like a team that you know might have the, the travel effect of seven true home games and more or less ten road games. And that's getting pretty lopsided. So I know a lot of the numbers have shown a lot of value on Atlanta, but is that potential of only seven true home games versus ten more or less road games is that anything that you factored in so far, or is that also something that even with that dynamic not breaking their way, seven and a half is a number just still has enough value to still go ahead and pull the trigger? Yeah, I think seven and a half. I mean, it, it has moved a little bit on the price. I think I saw minus 130 today. Um, I got it at minus 05. At, at minus 05, I, th- I think I made a pretty good bet. Um, if Julio gets traded and it, get, it gets back to like, I don't know, Seven and a half minus one ten minus one or five. I think fire away, pretty good number. And I think in general, um, home field advantage and traveling is a little bit overblown, especially in the media. Um, I don't think it 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 makes much of an impact nowadays than it did like a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, there were some really strong angles when it came to traveling, like um, West Coast team playing an early game on the East Coast or something like that. And that has completely flipped right now. I think over the past three years, um, West Coast teams in early East Coast games are like 65% against the spread or something. So the market has really, um, um, I think, overrated those kind of angles in the past. Um, and also nowadays, nowadays teams aren't doing a very good job when it comes to sports science. 
Um, I think there was an article on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2019. They just hired a team or a super duper um, uh, sports scientist or sleep scientist who helps them helps them um, uh, get towards travel schedules. Um, when do we go on plane? Um, should the um, players sleep on the flight? Um, when should we get into to the hotel, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to just um, beat the disadvantage of opposing time zones. And um, I think over over the past couple of years, you really see that the advantage or the or the disadvantage from tra- traveling and crossing several time zones has um, a little bit diminished, so to speak. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I know that we're well north of an hour at this age, and I want to be mindful of your time. So I've got one more betting-specific question for you, and then a few quick things to wrap it up. But you mentioned earlier that you only bet the NFL, and sometimes that means giving up value in other sports. But for the trade-off you get of having that laser focus on the NFL, it's worthwhile. I wonder... um this will be the last episode I release before the Floyd Mayweather Logan Paul boxing match. And I'm not sure how much publicity that's getting overseas, but it, it almost feels like a few years ago we were told that Mayweather McGregor was a once in a lifetime betting opportunity. And this might not be at that same level. Logan Paul is not in the same stratosphere necessarily as Connor McGregor, but you know, I'm seeing at some books as cheap of a line, I guess we can use air quotes for cheap because it's minus 1200 for Floyd Mayweather. Seems like the best price available. And doing the math, that's a 92% break-even probability. And it's hard to fathom an 8% chance that he loses this fight. So if you had somebody who was well-connected to boxing who said, hey, I've, I've looked at everything and and I see it north of 95% that Mayweather wins. There's a pretty nice delta there to lay the tw- minus 1,200 on Floyd. Is that something you would do, or is it still sticking to your guns and saying, you know, I, I bet the NFL, that's what I know, and maybe there's value there, but I'm going to let it go? Uh, yeah, yeah, probably, yes. So if someone or if, if a friend or a betting friend or whatever told me that, hey, there's a fight and there is um, a decent edge on one side, um, I would play it up to that price. I would dig into that. Um, I I also played. Um, I think Rob was on the um, "You Better You Bet" podcast last week, and he mentioned that um, he was high on the Colorado Avalanche um, to win the Stanley Cup um, because he saw value at the price. That's also something that I I just bet. After listening to that, um, I was also betting the NFL draft this year. So I I would occasionally bet some stuff, but really only if someone like you have explained right now, if, if someone told me that, hey, I did some research or I got a hot tip f- from a pro sports better, um, there's a good price to lay there. Then, yeah, I would absolutely bet it. But mainly just NFL. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to have that network where you can apply some good tips and then still have the discipline to focus in your lane. So totally hear you there. And on that note, I think we can just wrap up with a few pretty quick questions to close things out. Um, I, I love when I get the chance to speak to somebody of your caliber in the betting space. This thought often comes to mind. What's one thing you think most bettors can do to win more? Um. Good question. I I think I would apply that to the NFL 
because I don't really know lots of other sports. But when it comes to the NFL, um, and let's say you are a recreational better that doesn't have um, a high betting amount and who can bet into some opening limits offshore, I think it's pretty useful to um, sit down on a Saturday um, and go through the slate of the next week and basically write down, hey, here's an interesting matchup. Um, maybe you you can check out some past closing uh, closing line numbers and you, you are saying, hey, there's a very good opportunity. Um, I would make the number this and that. And then you are able to bet into some opening numbers on, let's say, Sunday evening. Um, I think bet online opens with like $500 limits. And those bet online openers, they are super soft. Um, I think they are just opening NFL lines um, um, as the first book to do some Twitter marketing um, because those numbers are sometimes really, really soft and you can get some really good closing line value if you bet into those bet online openers. Um, and then in general, try to bet early in the week um, because um, NFL is a tough market, lots of money in there um, and a highly efficient market. And if you bet on, on Sunday morning, um, you are not going to get lots of value. And if you bet early in the week, and you are able to collect some some closing line value, even if you don't bet um, lots of games. I think that could still give you an advantage um, over the market. And also in general, um, I think Johnny from Betstamp mentions it like on every single podcast. Try to have several outs um, as soon as you have a collection of like five to ten bookies or bookmakers offshore, whatever you can. Um, um, get a very good price. So if you are able to bet into opening limits um, and you have a variety of bookmakers where you can also get like um, five to eight different outs on Monday morning, I think you can get some pretty good value against the closing line in the NFL. Nice. Well, I think we'll be hard-pressed to top that advice when it comes to betting football. So shifting gears <laughs> to a side job that I've heard you have, covering soccer for a local newspaper. Is that still something you're actively doing? And if so, I find that so fascinating because I imagine you're doing well enough betting that if that's all you focused on, you'd be okay, you know, from the standpoint of having a good career, having a good income. But what drives you to pursue something beyond it? Uh, just the fun of it, to be completely honest. Um I've started um, doing that job when I started studying, I think back in 2011. And um, it's just that I can spend the Sunday afternoon on the local soccer uh, places, watch some amateur soccer. And afterwards, I write like an hour or an hour and a half about it. Sometimes I do some articles throughout the week. About, uh, about some local stories, local sports stories in my town. And it's just a nice change sometimes to just think about something different. And I could not imagine not being on a amateur soccer place on Sunday afternoon. So it's, it's just the, the, um, fun part of it. And for a very long time, it was also, it was also a, 
um, very solid side income for me when I was still studying. Yeah, I love to hear that because is in the weeds as we've gotten with the process and some numbers and just really trying to extract value from a betting standpoint, still having that human element of something that's purely fun and and enjoyable. And I'm reminded of a previous guest I had on the show who is a, a professor at the University of Southern California who's a Heisman Trophy voter and just does so many things at such a high level. He does very well for himself, but he mentioned just getting out to high school football games on a Friday night. Like if he could go yeah. to one sporting event in the world, he would often pick the sideline at a Southern California high school, just getting under those Friday night lights. So there is something about just getting out there in that element and a lot of, you know, whether it's the NCAA talking about amateurism or stories about purity in sports, a lot of it is a facade, but at the same time, there's a reason that we all got into this in the first place. So it's nice to still keep in touch with something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one more question for you, and then we'll take things home. Bringing things full circle to where we started. You're in Germany, so I have to ask a little bit more about the beer scene there and and how you would describe yourself as a beer drinker. I mean, I'm envious of all the just historically incredible quality that you've got at your disposal. Also being close to markets like Belgium or the UK where different styles are really popular, what do you tend to gravitate toward as a drinker? And, and yeah, I guess just overall, how would you describe your journey as a fan of beer? So I'm a big time beer guy. Um, beer is a very important part of Germany. Um, absolutely. We have a, um, a major beer history in our country and beer is just like, it's basically just like water over here. And, um, I'm personally a big Pilsner guy, but the reason is that, um, I live in a region in, um, Western Germany near Dortmund where Pilsner is the primary beer to drink. Um, you can also get all other kinds of beer from Bavaria, like white beer, Weizen beer, um, lager, um, helles, uh, dark beer. You can also get some IPAs over here. Last week I drank, or oh, let's say I found some IPA from, I think, Richmond in the US. Um, I can't remember the name. I, I had, it in, had, it in, had it in my fleet. Um, but in, in general, um, I'm primary Pilsner drinker, but when I get to other places, when I go on vacation, I love to, um, try as many other brands and other beers, um, fr from those local regions as possible. Yeah, I'm shot in the dark, but when you mentioned Richmond, I know that Stone Brewing has a presence yeah, there. It, that was that, yeah. That's, wow. Okay. Talk about the world getting smaller every day. I grew up, Stone's original spot was in San Diego County in California. And I grew up right next to it. And as soon as I was, you know, coming home from college of age to go enjoy some craft beer, that's where we went. So the fact that they have since expanded to Virginia and then maybe sent some stuff overseas. I know they had a Germany operation for a bit, I think in Berlin. Um, that is so cool that that's, you know, a good exposure you can get to IPAs. So Man, um, the world's a small place, and yeah, hopefully one day um, Oktoberfest will happen again, and maybe we can both make it out there for the first time. It's been such an honor to have a beer with you virtually over the course of this conversation, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I would love to one day do it in person. But before we fully get on out of here, I also need to plug what you're up to so that people can find your work and connect with you. So I know on Twitter, again, it's at Suma810, S-U-U-M-A-810. 
Also, with the pick service, football-handicapping.com. People can also find you as a mainstay on the Matchbook Betting Podcast during the NFL season. Is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? That was um, perfectly said. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, just hit me up on Twitter. That's probably the best source possible. Got it. Well, Fabian, thanks again. This was such an honor and, and so much good insight here. I took a lot of notes. I hope listeners take notes as well. A lot of good stuff to imply once we're back into full swing with football. So um, have a great weekend. Really appreciate your time and hope to maybe do this again at some point. Absolutely. Um, it was a blast. Um, I think you are a very good interviewer and um, I really hope uh, you and I wish you much success with this um, podcast going forward. I think it's a very great um, format. Awesome. Well, coming from somebody like you, I, I can't express how much it means to hear that right now. So uh, thank you for the motivation. I'll look to keep it going strong. Goodbye. Thanks again to Fabian for joining the show. If you enjoyed the conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, I'd love to connect. You can find me on Twitter at MLandis18 and on Instagram at Props and Hops. And lastly, if you'd be interested in a write-up on the highlights from my conversation with Fabian, you'll be able to find that over at Dimers.com, where you'll also be able to find free picks on NBA player props that have been firing on all cylinders lately, thanks to the Dimers predictive analytics model. Alright, that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. Thanks for listening, I'll talk to you next week, and until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. Oh